This morning we are going to continue our study of the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. So go ahead and make your way to Genesis, the very first book in your Bible. There are pew Bibles in front of you if you'd like to use those. We are in week three, technically, of this study. And in two weeks, we've made it through five verses. Amen? Amen. I do expect the pace to quicken (laughs) as we go along. This morning, we're going to try to get through verse 25 of verse, excuse me, verse 25 of chapter 1 and look at the rest of the days of creation. As I said last week, there's going to be a bit of a connection between last week and this week. Uh, Genesis 1-1 is the superscription. I think that's the right word. The banner, the title over this whole section. In the beginning, God the heavens and the earth. Okay, thank you. The whole, so this is the banner over the whole chapter. This is where Moses is going. This is the main point. And then in verse 2, it's actually a pretty weird verse if you look at it carefully. I can try to help us consider why it's in the Bible and think carefully about why the Lord through Moses put it in our Bible. Uh, and we talked about how the Lord, God, is king, reigning supreme even in chaos. The earth is without form and void Darkness over the face of the deep, but the Spirit of God is hovering back and forth, moving over the chaos, this watery matrix of creation or of what is about to be formed into creation. That's verse 2. And then, finally, the first day of creation begins in verse 3, goes through verse 5. That was last week. But verses 3 through 13, as I said last week, are all, it's the first three days of creation, and these first three days of creation are all about the Lord forming the earth. The king of the universe is forming the earth. And then verses 14 through 25, days 4, 5, and 6 of creation, is the Lord God, the king of the universe, filling the earth. So there's a a very clear symmetry to the rest of this chapter, starting in verse 3, the six days of creation. There's the king who forms the earth, and the king who fills the earth. Now, the main point of this chapter, as I said last week, is that Israel's God is the king of the universe, the supreme deity, the one and only God over all things, because he created all things. Israel's God is not some territorial deity, but rather the king of the cosmos, because he created the cosmos. So Moses is making it very clear to these people coming out of Egypt, headed into the promised land, that their God is God, the one true and living God. He's doing this also, um, he's doing a bit of apologetics, as I said last week. He's, He's saying, hey, those gods of Egypt, those weren't real. They're not God because they didn't create the universe. And he's saying, hey, we're headed into Canaan, a land full of pagan deities and idols, they're not God either because they didn't create the universe. So he's doing some apologetics here. He's saying, hey, Israel, Egypt's gods aren't God. Canaan's gods aren't God. Your God is God. Why? Because he created everything. Therefore, he's God. So there's some apologetics happening here. We'll see some more of that in just a moment. We'll look specifically at the days. But I also said last week that Moses, like a good pastor, is comforting his people. These people have just come out of slavery. They've wandered around the wilderness. They they face the unknown, the unknown across the Jordan River in the promised land. They have the promises of God, just like we do. But let's think about this. We have the promises of God. Many of us could rehearse them and recite them. We know what God has said he will do for us. But don't we also struggle to believe? I see like three head nods. Okay, we struggle. We have the promises, but then we're like, I don't know. You know, over the river over there, there's a lot of unknowns, uncertainties, fortresses, armies, nations, giants. I have no idea how this is going to go, but I have the promises of God. So what Moses is doing here, like a good pastor, is he's reminding his people, the people of Israel, hey, you can trust the promises of God because he created everything. And if he created everything, he can do anything. (laughs) Anything. Anything that lies before you across that Jordan is 
under the will and supremacy of God because he's creator. So there's a lot happening in this text, this first chapter. We're going to look at the second, third, fourth, fifth, and half of the sixth day of creation this morning. I'm going to save the second half of, the, of day six for next week, the creation of man and woman. But I do want us to note, as I said, there's a clear symmetry in this text. Day one, two, and three are God forming the earth. Days four, five, and six are God filling the earth. If you're taking notes, you can make two columns. Put day one, two, and three in one column. Day four, five, and six in a corresponding column. I'll kind of tell you where we're going, how they relate. Day one, God creates light and dark. That was last week. Day four, God creates lights of day and night. Light and dark, lights of day and night. Then day two, God creates sea and sky. Day five, God creates the creatures of sea and sky. Day two, sea and sky. Day five, creatures of sea and sky. Day three, God creates land and vegetation. Then day six, God creates the creatures of the land. Land and vegetation, then creatures of the land. Of course, on day seven, God rested. So day one corresponds to day four, day two to day five, day three to day six. These two sets of days correspond exactly to what Moses has already said in verse 2. Remember verse 2, the earth was without form and void. So in the first three days of creation, God forms the earth. In the second three days of creation, God fills the earth. This is the title of the sermon this morning, Forming and Filling. God addresses its formlessness, and then He addresses its emptiness. Let's go through these days one at a time. We did day one last week. If you want to listen to that, it's on the internet. We're going to pick it up in day two, verses six through eight, where God continues to form the earth He has made. Verse six, day two. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, or sky. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. So day one was light and dark. Day two here is sea and sky. I mentioned sea, by the way, because the Lord begins to create the sea and then completes it on day three. He separates the waters below from the waters above. So the creation of the sea is begun here on day two, completed on day three. Now let's talk about this expanse for a moment. This expanse between the waters, it separates the waters above from the waters below. We might call this the earth's atmosphere, the blue that we see when we look at the sky. I'm not going to entertain all of the questions that you have about that. There's a whole stack of books in my office that you can uh, look at if you'd like to dig into. There's all kinds of theories about what this expanse is, what this water above really is. I'm not going to get into that. All right? Just sorry. We don't have time. But what I do want to say is that in verse 8, notice that God names the expanse heaven or sky. Now back in verse 5, last week, we saw that God named the light day and the darkness night. This is very important theologically because it means that these different elements of creation that God is beginning to name uh, indicate that God and God alone is the sovereign ruler over creation. How do we know that? Because you only name things that belong to you. If you have children, you name your children. You don't name other people's children. That would be really weird. If you have a pet, you get to name your pet. Amen? It's a glorious enterprise. It's a lot of fun. God owns everything creates everything, so he has naming rights. 
Now the pagan cultures around the Israelites, both in Egypt and in Canaan, thought that the heavens belonged to various gods. I'm not going to get into the pantheon of gods in each of these cultures. But here Moses in Genesis is making it clear that the God of Israel alone owns the heavens. Why? How? How do we know that? Because he names it. He names it heaven or sky. Therefore, it's his. It doesn't belong to any of these pagan deities who are up there battling it out for supremacy. God graphically declares his lordship over creation by naming what he created. And we'll see that again and again throughout this text. So on day two, he creates sea and sky. Day three, starting verse nine, God creates land and vegetation. He finishes creating the sea but also creates the land and vegetation. So let's look at verses 9 through 13, day 3. Verse 9, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, verse 11, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening. And there was morning the third day. So God creates the land, the vegetation. Notice he speaks twice on day three. Verse 9, and God said. Verse 11, and God said. By the way, in these six days of creation, God speaks ten times. And, and God said, that phrase is used exactly ten times over these six days. And God said. And God said. Which also reveals his supremacy as he creates simply through his Word, but it also points to him as lawgiver. Can you think of any other time where God spoke to his people ten ways? In ten ways. Ten commandments. Good job, Tina. Ten commandments. God is the lawgiver. God speaks and he expects obedience. Creation, it's perfect obedience. Of course, with his law, there's not. So God is the Lord and the lawgiver over creation. His first word in verse, excuse me, in day three in verse nine, let, and excuse me, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, let the dry land appear. Uh, this finalizes the ordering of the earth. He brings forth the dry land. He marks out the boundaries of the oceans or what the Bible calls the seas. So we've seen in these first three days, and now we're going fast. Day one was last week. In these first three days, God has separated light from darkness, waters below from waters above, dry land from the seas. So in these first three days, He's giving form and shape to the earth. The earth as we know it has been given its shape, and the chaos has dissipated. The fixed forms of the earth are in place. God has brought order out of chaos by His Word. So that then by the end of day three, His work of filling the earth can begin with the creation of vegetation. He speaks again on day 3, verse 11. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. So the emphasis at the end of day 3 begins to shift towards filling. The earth is formed, now it will be filled. God's second word on day 3 begins His work of filling. Let's talk briefly about these, these three items listed. We have vegetation there in verse 11. Vegetation probably refers to grasses or ground covering. Plants yielding seed could refer to all small plants like bushes and shrubs. The fruit trees bearing fruit could refer to any large and woody plant, any tree, especially fruit bearing trees. So God, at the end of day three, is covering the entire landscape of the earth with grasses, flowers, shrubs, and trees. God, on day three, made Bermuda grass, blue bonnets, boxwood bushes, and birch trees. 
He made St. Augustine grass. The best kind of grass, amen? Sand dollar cacti, sage, sweet gums, and sycamores. And I know I obviously left out your favorites. I wonder, have you ever considered, it's no coincidence that God has created the earth to, in such a way that it just so happens to have all the food necessary to feed millions and millions of species of animals and then humans. Isn't that interesting? That our earth just so happens to have enough food to feed everyone. This certainly appears to be the evidence of design, not coincidence. It's also interesting that the Bible says that plants were made before animals. Plants on day three, animals later on day five and then six. This is the opposite of the evolutionary paradigm. Also note that the plants, as well as later we'll see the fish, the birds, the animals, and humans on days four and five, excuse me, five and six, are created as full-grown, fully functioning plants, thus having the appearance of age. I don't want to take a, a long time to debate with you about evolution. I, I do want you to ask yourself whether you blindly accept the modern myth of our culture, that everything we see is the result of millions and millions of years of chemical reactions, or whether there's truth in this text that we're reading. I'd encourage you to dig into that question. It's an important question. It doesn't determine whether you're a Christian or not, by the way. It will, I think, help you think carefully about the God you love and the glory in his creation, the glory of his creation. So that's day three. He's created land and vegetation. Day four. Let's move into day four, verses 14 through 19. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. So on the fourth day, God creates the lights of day and night. Day one corresponds to day four. On day one, he creates light and darkness. Day four, he creates the lights of day and night. He creates the sun, moon, and stars. The phrase here in verse 14, let there be, let there be lights, indicates that this is a new creative act, just as it indicates in verse three, let there be light. And verse 6, let there be an expanse. Why is this important? I think this means that, as I said last week, God created light before he created the sun or the stars. And as I said last week, if God can create the things that generate light waves, then he can surely create light waves themselves. If Genesis 1-1 is true, if God created everything out of nothing, then He is indeed the God of infinite, infinite possibility. So I'm arguing that verse 14 and following day 4 of creation is a new creative act. Some will say that the sun was created in verse 1, but it was hidden behind the kind of a misty, foggy thing, and then the Lord kind of brought it out on day 4. But I think the language here suggests otherwise. Let there be is a new creative act. Now notice in this portion that he doesn't even use the word sun or moon. Do you see that? He doesn't call the sun the sun or the moon the moon. He calls it the, great, the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. Verse 16. Why would he avoid this language? Well, 
They're coming out of a culture in Egypt where the sun and the moon were worshipped as gods. So, Moses yet again emphasizes that there's only one God, that no celestial body, whatever we call it, has power to affect life on earth. Moses is making it clear that everything we see in the heavens owes its existence to the unseen one. The focus is on the sun and the moon, how they affect life on the earth. But I wonder if you also caught the end of verse 16 where he just throws in the stars. Did you see that? The greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. And the stars. <laughs> you know, just threw those in. Our galaxy alone has 200 billion stars. You science majors can correct me on these numbers later. But I want to say that there are estimated to be billions of galaxies. Billions. B. Billions of stars in our galaxy, billions of galaxies. And Moses gives it three words. And the stars. And the stars. And the Bible says that God has a name for each and every star. Isaiah 40, 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. So the Israelites were surrounded by cultures saturated with astrology, with the worshiping of celestial bodies. Now, it wasn't just the worshiping of those bodies, but it was this belief that those bodies affected life on earth. That those things up there affected life down here. So Moses is not so subtly saying, no, God put those things there. So if God put them there and has naming rights over them, then He's the one who has control over this earth and over your life. Now it does say that the sun, moon, and stars rule over the day and night, but as Moses makes clear, it's only in the sense of marking time and seasons, days and years. The stars don't rule over our lives. God does. So I'd encourage you, if you spend any time checking your horoscope, you might want to stop that because it actually is not true. I could tell you how your life's going to go in general vague terms. Call me. You're probably going to have a great week next week, but there will be some challenges. <laughs> right? All kidding aside, horoscopes, I don't want to say this is like the unforgivable sin or something, but it is a matter of, do you really think that these things up here are controlling and forming and shaping your life down here? No. If God put them there, then He's in control of this whole thing, including our little lives. So we look to Him. We talk to Him. We listen to Him. We read His guide for our life. That's day four. Day four corresponds back to day one. God created the light and the dark, and then God creates the lights of day and night. Now in day five, God creates the creatures of sea and sky, corresponding back to day two where he made sea and sky. Let's look at day five, verse 20. Day five, verse 20 through 23. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the, fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was morning and there was, there's evening, there was morning on the fifth day. So day five, God creates everything that lives in the seas and everything that lives in the air. Corresponding back to day two, He separates them. He separated sea from the air. Now He fills them. Earth now has the conditions for life. So now come the living creatures. God made the waters, it says in verse 20, to swarm. What a great word. Maybe your translation says team. The waters swarmed or teemed with living creatures, with sea creatures. And this was surely true of the birds later spoken of and the next day, the land animals as well. The word swarm is a really cool word if you think about it. When you're attacked by a swarm of bees, what does it mean? Well, it means you're in trouble. 
It means you better run. But it means an abundance of bees are just flying all over the place, and they're coming after you. A swarm of sea creatures fill the sea. I love how John Frame describes this. Theologian John Frame puts it this way. He says that God created a world that is, quote, unnecessarily diverse and abundant. Unnecessarily diverse and abundant. There are vast numbers of every kind of sea creature moving through the waters of the earth. Every kind of fowl flying through the air. The diversity is almost pointless. Of course, we know there is a point. More on that in a moment. When you go down to the Perot Museum in downtown Dallas, taking the boys there many times, we go and um, we love level four the most because that's where the dinosaurs are. But on level two, this big sign greets you on level two. It says, quote, evolution is the engine of diversity. And I just want to say, no, I don't think that's true. I think God is the engine of diversity. God made the oceans swarm with, with sea creatures. The Bible says that God, like a master artist, created a diverse and beautiful array of life forms on the earth. Here in the sea, it says that God, the master artist, created things like whale sharks, sperm whales, bottlenose dolphins, hammerhead sharks, jellyfish. Have you ever considered a jellyfish? No organs, no brain. How does this work? Swordfish, catfish, starfish, shrimp, crabs, lobsters, eels, sea turtles, octopuses, squid, largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, crappie, salmon, rainbow trout, and even piranhas. And prehistoric marine reptiles such as the mosasaur, ichthyosaur, and plesiosaur. He creates eagles, cardinals, blue jays, ducks, geese, toucans, macaws, mockingbirds, hummingbirds, and every other kind of bird to fill the sky. Have you ever just been outside and wondered and thought, there's birds. I don't see them, but I hear them everywhere. And just consider this thought. God made a creature to give constant melody to the earth. <laughs> There's always music playing. If you'll take your headphones out, you'll hear it. So next time you see a bird or a fish, say to yourself, God made that. From great to small, everything that moves in the ocean, everything that flies in the air is a result of God's well, think of this, too. God created things beyond our realm, things removed completely from our understanding and our use. We wouldn't even know of many of these creatures if it weren't for modern technologies. This means that God made some things, some creatures, just for His pleasure, just because He wanted to. Verse 22 has the first blessing in the Bible. Did you see that? God blessed them. God blessed them. What is this blessing God gives to sea creatures and birds? Well, it tells us plainly, God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the way God blessed sea creatures and birds is by designing them, allowing them to procreate. He wanted the creatures he made to continue to exist perpetually and to fill the whole earth. The same can be applied later to the animals, though not stated explicitly. It is stated explicitly to man and woman, verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. God gave the living creatures He made the gift of ongoing life through self-propagation. As one commentator says, the Creator makes creators. Life truly is a blessing from God. And the fact that creatures 
of all shapes and sizes and humans are allowed and designed to procreate is a blessing from Almighty God, not an accident of nature. So that's day five. We've seen day five correspond back to day two. Day two, God separated the waters. Day five, He fills the waters below and He fills the sky above. Now on day six, we'll see God create the creatures of the land. Day six, verse 24 and 25. Day six, and God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So on day three, God made land and vegetation. Now on day six, God creates the creatures of the land. This speaks of animals. Next week we'll get into the rest of day six where it teaches that God created male and female. We're going to do an entire week on the last section of this chapter. Now, it said that these animals there are made according to their kinds. It's actually said this about the plants in verses 11 and 12, the sea creatures and birds in verse 21. There's debate over what a kind is. What is a kind? It could refer to different species or different families of creatures. But at the very least, we should notice that it tells us that living things don't have a common ancestry or descent, that living creatures aren't fundamentally interrelated. Yes, there can and is, can be and is crossbreeding that happens, but fundamentally living creatures aren't interrelated. Creating according to kind means that God established parameters around the things he created. Interestingly, though, this term isn't used for humans. We'll see this next week. We are a unique order of creation. There aren't kinds of humans. There are only male and female. But with everything else, there are a diversity of species, plants, fish, birds, reptiles, amphibians, animals. But as one commentator points out, the great architect of the universe, God, does not permit the colors of his canvas to run together. There's, a, there's, a, there's an ordering to the things he made. There are different kinds. There are parameters. To break it down this way, a horse will never become a squirrel. A marlin will never become a sperm well. There are different kinds by design in God's creation. Now, back to this day six, it says that God created three categories of animals. He made the livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. These generic categories encompass every kind of animal. Livestock refers to domesticated animals like cows and horses, donkeys, goats, sheep, dogs, and even cats. Creeping things. Creeping things. This is some, there's some debate on creeping things. What is a creeping thing? <laughs> what is a creeping thing? Well, it, at, at, at the most basic level, it means something that moves along the ground. So it might be referring to snakes. As much as I don't want to believe that, I'd have to believe that God made snakes. And lizards. And things like crocodiles and alligators. Perhaps even smaller animals like lemurs. Squirrels, raccoons, foxes, otters, beavers, skunks, rabbits. Yes, even possums. Or are they a product of the curse? I don't know. Insects, I think, might fall here under creeping things. Bees, ants, spiders, ladybugs, earthworms, butterflies, leaf bugs, thick bugs, beetles, and everyone's favorite insect, at least in our house, the roly-poly. I know I left out your favorite animal or insect, forgive me, but maybe I didn't. Let's go to the last category. There's one more category. With all the, uh, the big animals, the beasts of the earth, these are game animals like elephants, hippos, lions, tigers, panthers, giraffes, zebras, gorillas, hyenas, wolves, coyotes, mountain lions, moose, elk, bison, bears, 
and on and on we could go. I think it also refers to dinosaurs, by the way. I believe that God made dinosaurs on day six. And yes, I know what you're thinking. Well, wouldn't the dinosaurs just kind of eat everyone? You're like, I've seen Jurassic Park. I've seen Jurassic World. It never ends well. Well, I think it's actually possible for dinosaurs to exist with humans and other animals on the earth at the same time. As we'll learn next week, all animals and humans were designed to be vegetarians at first. One scientist points out that dinosaurs, like bears today, use their sharp teeth and claws to dig up and eat plants, just like a grizzly bear would. So God, on day six, created the stegosaur, tyrannosaur, ankylosaur, brachiosaur, spinosaur, triceratop, and velociraptor. Did I leave out any of the cool ones? <laughs> Elisha's like thinking about it. He'll tell me later what I left out. But if what I'm saying is true, we have to then also come to terms with these dinosaurs, these creatures, these beasts of the earth. They lived on the earth in complete harmony with everything else that God had made. They weren't ripping and devouring and terrorizing God's creation. That would come later. Thank you, John Hammond. So, we've ended the six, well, almost ended the six days of creation. We'll end it next week. God has formed the earth, days one through three. He's filled the earth, days four through six. I want us to draw some application from this. I don't want us to just look at this and be filled with information. This was amazing to study. I told Susie that I think Genesis 1 is one of my new favorite passages in the Bible. So incredible what God has done. But there's a lot for us to take away from here as well. First off, God not only formed and filled the earth as creator, but as redeemer, God is forming and filling his church. God creates the church by sending his son Christ to die for our sins and then calling people by his spirit to believe in Christ, making them into one family, forming them together, filling them with his presence. God's creative work is not done. It's still ongoing in his church. But as we study the Bible, we'll also see that creation, anytime a biblical writer talks about creation, almost always it ends up leading to worship. They end up praising God, such as Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth all their host. Therefore, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Or Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and created. God is worthy of worship because he's creator. So one of the things that fuels our worship of God is his creation. We don't worship his creation. That's called idolatry. We worship the God who reveals his glory in his creation. If we have eyes to see, we'll see traces of God's glory everywhere. I wonder if you've ever been out in the woods or on top of a mountain or laying on a beach or sitting on your patio or under a tree and something inside of you just wanted to explode because there was just too much beauty to take in. Is this experience only unique to me? There's too much Not just beauty, but grandeur and power and glory and wisdom as you sit there and look at a tree (laughs) or some flowers or the Pacific Ocean or the creek that runs through your neighborhood. And creation is but a reflection of the glory of God. Can you imagine? If this is true, if, if what God made... If what God made stirs our hearts like that, can you imagine what we'll feel when we see His face? When we see the contours of Jesus' face. And we feel, we, we feel His hand on our face. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? 
the one, I think, is meant to point us to the other. We see traces of the glory of God in everything he's made, preparing us to see the ultimate picture of the glory of God, namely the face of Jesus Christ. So creation creates worship. Creation also creates joy. Notice that God said in this section, he says repeatedly that it was good. It was good. It was good. The end of the sixth day, it is very good. I think from this we can infer that God wants us to enjoy his creation. God wants us to find happiness in his handiwork. Sin, of course, has marred and mangled creation, but there's still so much to enjoy. When Susie and I were out this summer in Hawaii, we went snorkeling at this special beach with a beautiful coral reef. You had to get there super early and get a ticket, and you only could come in at a certain time because they were trying to preserve the coral. It was by far one of the most exhilarating things I've ever done for two reasons. Number one, I was terrified of sharks the entire time. Anybody else there with me? And it wasn't even that deep. We're talking like a few feet, maybe 10 feet max. But the whole time I'm like, this is amazing. You know, <laughs> swimming backwards so I can kind of see. My, I couldn't take it in as much as I should have probably. But it was also exhilarating because as you just kind of float, we just had to kind of float. We didn't really have to swim. You just float. And these massive, beautiful fish just swim right in front of you. With every color of the rainbow, purples and pinks and greens and yellows and oranges and reds. And you're just left wondering, how is all of this here? Later in our trip, we were able to go paddle boarding and we saw sea turtles, these giant creatures as big as this pulpit, just swim along beside us and poke their little heads up and look at us and then go back to what they were doing. Then a couple evenings, we got to sit on the, the North Shore in Oahu and watch the sun set. Have you ever seen the sky turn purple? <laughs> purple. Now, you don't have to go to Hawaii, men and women. You don't have to go on some vacation. You don't have to be an Eagle Scout. You don't have to be John Muir and discover Yosemite to enjoy what God has made, to find happiness in God's handiwork. But I do think that going outside, going outside more than you already may do would increase your joy. And I'm not the only one saying this. I think many secular folks would say that being outside increases and helps our mental, emotional, psychological health. Feeling the sun on our skin, the breeze in our face, hearing the birds sing, seeing the diversity and shades of color in the grasses and bushes and flowers and trees, breathing fresh air can happen right where you live. So, brothers and sisters, take walks, buy a bicycle, go on bike rides, go camping with your friends or family. Use your vacation time to enjoy God's world instead of vegging out on entertainment. God's glory is screaming at us and I think is meant to be enjoyed. It was good. It was good. It was good. Now, that also means, by the way, that we have a stewardship responsibility with what God has made. Good is a moral pronouncement. No, he doesn't just say it's beautiful, though it is that. He says it is good. There's something morally positive about what God has made. God made the world inherently good. And like everything else that's good, it should not only be delighted in and enjoyed, but also protected and preserved. So yes, Christians should care about the environment. We have a responsibility to steward the good of God's creation. We should do what we can, where we are, to take care of the good things God made. This, the way this works itself out in our lives will look differently. We don't have to all advocate publicly or politically for the same things. That's a matter of Christian freedom. But I think we all have a responsibility to care for what God made. Start with recycling. Amen. I've turned into a bit of a recycling Nazi. I, you know, mean to do this, but now I'll walk around the church and I'll see a plastic bottle in the trash can. Like, no, how dare you? You belong in the recycling bin. 
Kidding, but not really. However this looks, I don't know how it will look for you, but there is a responsibility for the image bearers of God to care for the good thing that God has made. All of it. So we should find joy and happiness and even a stewardship in creation. Lastly, I think Moses wants to comfort his people. As I said at the beginning, Moses wants to comfort his people with the knowledge that their God is the God who controls the destiny of the world, the destiny of their lives. He knows that what's ahead of them is unknown and unpredictable, so he wants to bring comfort to God's children. And he does this by reminding them that God created everything. Jesus actually tells us to look at creation to remember God's care for us. Do you remember what Coleman read for us a few moments ago? Jesus actually tells us to look at creation so that we'll remember God's care for us. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Then he goes even further. Consider the lilies of the field, the vegetation, how they grow. They neither toil nor, nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So Jesus' argument is simple. If God cares for plant and animal life, then he cares for you more. Are you not of more value than they? As we'll see next week, because we bear the image of God, God values us more than the birds or flowers or oceans or galaxies. The supreme king of the universe created everything, including us. And he cares for us. You remember what Peter says, cast your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Did you know that God cares for you? He actually cares about what's going on in your life. He's actually interested in more than you know, whether or not you let some curse words come out this week. He's interested. He cares. He can be trusted. He sees the tears we cry when we're alone. He knows the thoughts that consume us in the quiet places. He understands the shame and embarrassment of being abused and abandoned and betrayed. He's aware of the secret sins and the public sins that plague you. And he still cares. He hasn't just turned his back and walked away. He's come near you in the Lord Jesus Christ. As your creator, he made you. And then as your redeemer, he actually left heaven, came to earth to show you the depth of his care. His gracious character and care find their ultimate revelation in Jesus. Jesus is the flesh and blood embodiment of God's care for his creation and his care for you. So if you wonder, does God care for me? Look at Jesus. The answer is yes. If you wonder if he sees you, look at Jesus. The answer is yes. God's power in creation teaches us that we can trust God no matter how dire the circumstance. God's power in the gospel teaches us that we can trust God to rescue us from our direst of circumstances. I love how Dane Ortland puts this. He says, In Christ, our deserved condemnation and an eternity in hell have already been emptied of their threat and power. God... God doesn't just care about your clothes or your food. He cares for your soul. He cares for your eternity. He wants you to live forever in heaven, not in hell. So God sent his son Jesus to pass through death and come out the other side so that everyone who puts their trust in him will be cared for both now and eternally. Have you done that, friend? If you're considering Christianity, you're wondering if all this is true, let me encourage you to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away from your sins. Cling to Him. He cares deeply for you, both now and forever. And 
when you do that, when we come to Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit, who the Bible calls the Comforter, to keep us in God's care and comfort us with God's comfort until the end. So in the gospel, this is so beautiful if you think about it. In the gospel, our creator becomes our redeemer who gives the comforter. So we should worship him and trust him, relax in him. I think it was Eugene Peterson one time who was asked to describe Jesus with one word. And he just said, relaxed. (laughs) It's not the word I would have chosen. Perfectly content with the Father. You can relax in Christ because he cares for you. He knows everything and he still cares. Come to him, worship him, trust him, rest in him, enjoy him, delight in him. Only he can form and fill your life. Only he can form and fill our church with the beauty and power and peace we long for. In the gospel, our creator becomes our redeemer and gives us the comforter. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would please help us to not so much get lost so much in the details of these six days of creation, though this is fascinating. This is so much fun to study and consider. Lord, bring us again and again and again to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remind us again that you, our creator, are also our redeemer, our rescuer, our friend, and our comforter. Remind those today, this morning, who are hurting, that you see them, that you understand, and that you have the power to form and fill their lives. Lord, we pray that our church would be formed by you and filled by you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us and make us more and more like Jesus. We have no design to be the coolest, hippest, biggest, flashiest church in town. We do want to look more and more like Jesus. Please help us, fill us, form us in Jesus' name. Amen.